As we saw in chapter 5, we had the namesake of the book of Deuteronomy, the repetition or second giving of the law. In chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, we now have instructions on how to keep the religion of God in multi-generational fashion from one generation to another. Hear now the reading of the word of Almighty God, Deuteronomy 6, inspired by His Spirit and profitable for us. Verse 1. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. And with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. And when thou walkest by the way. And when thou liest down. And when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. And they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be, when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land, which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shalt swear by his name, Ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. Ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies, and his statutes, which he hath commanded thee. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to cast out all thine enemies from before thee, as the Lord hath spoken. And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, 
And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. And thus far the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word from Deuteronomy chapter 6. A few comments on this most important passage. First in verses 1 through 3, we have a persuasive to keep the commandments of God. And in these words, he says, verse 1, are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you. Some believe that the threefold division of the law in the moral law in the ceremonial law and the judicial laws here spoken of, if not in these airtight categories, yet still these distinctions exist within God's law. But notice God's intention. Why is it that he taught them through Moses these commandments? It's so that they could do them. You see that very clearly. That's God's intention, that ye may do them in the land whither ye go to possess it. We saw this in chapter 5, verse 1, where God said, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day. Why? That ye may learn them, he says, and keep and do them. So God's intention in teaching us is that we might apply by doing what he has commanded. Also notice he says that they were going into the land to possess it. This word possess means to receive something as your inheritance. God had chosen their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had appointed for them an inheritance. This is what I give you in my testament. You are my heirs. I am your father. Paul calls this the adoption of Israel. So then we notice that as God gives us goods in his testament... And as he teaches us in his law to know the truth, what is God's intention? It is that we would obey, that we would do, that we would keep his commandments, not merely to learn. Yes, we must learn. Doctrine is always the foundation of duty. But beyond just learning, we must do, we must apply, we must keep his commandments. Let us then beware of an idol or a merely theoretical faith. The old theologians used to say our faith is theoretical practical. It is theory and practice together. It is not one or the other. Doctrine forms the foundation and certainly has the priority, but it always produces some practical end. God always has some end, whether it's worshiping him, whether it's loving our neighbor, whether it's working diligently with our hands, whatever it is, God has a practical end for his doctrines. Notice verse 2, another intention, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, he says. Reverence for God, worship of God is his service. Fear is that inner attitude of respect and reverence for God. 
God wants us to fear him. That's why he teaches us through his word. He says that not just you should fear God, but who else should fear God? He says, thy son and thy son's sons all the days of thy life. God's intention is not merely that we should learn the scriptures and do it ourselves, but also that we should pass the faith on to the next generation and to the generation following that. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker, I'm spending my children's inheritance? That's the inverse of what God is saying here. God says, I want you to pass on an inheritance, not merely to your children, but to your grandchildren. We must then have a multi-generational faith, and that's what Deuteronomy 6 is all about. Notice also verse 3. Another intention God had in teaching them by Moses, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily. Now, God is not a vending machine. Insert 50 cents of obedience, out comes the Coke of blessing. No, that's not how it works. We are not meriting anything from God when we keep his commandments. But God, in his mercy, says, I will encourage your obedience by blessing you. Would you like to have a good life? Would you like it to go well with you? Would you like it to go well with your children and your grandchildren? Here's the solution. God says, keep my commandments, hear my words, and do them. And you will be blessed. You will enjoy your inheritance. The heirs of my testament will be multiplied and the land will live at peace. Verses 4 through 9, then God gives the fundamentals of truth and duty laid down to reinforce their duty of obedience. Verse 4 is what we call the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The word Shema just means hear. Listen. Listen carefully to what God is about to tell you. Then he gives them a doctrine. The Lord our God is one Lord, he says. There is one substance of the deity, though there may be three persons in the Trinity, there is only one God. And therefore... Since there is only one God, he alone is to be worshipped and glorified as God. There may be only one form of worship according to his will. These are the implications of the unity of the Godhead. Also notice God applies it in verse 5. Here's the duty based off of this doctrine. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. And with all thy soul and with all thy might, because there's only one object of worship, our love cannot be divided between the true God and creatures, other supposed gods, the saints, the angels, your spouse, your boss, the government, whoever it is. Our love cannot be divided between God, who is one, and all the multiplicity of creatures that are out there. God then, in his mighty power, demands that we love him. Now, let me just say, when we hear the word heart in our generation, we think of usually kittens and flowers and chocolate and beautiful things and, oh, this feeling I have of love. That's not how the Bible thinks of love. The Bible thinks of love in a much more practical way. And when it speaks of your heart doing the loving, it thinks of your heart in a very different way than we're accustomed to think. It thinks of how do you think? 
What are the choices that you make? What are the affections you have that move you towards certain objects? And primarily, it's how you think. The heart thinks. The heart of man is where he remembers. The heart of man is where he makes moral judgments about himself and other people. So when we love the Lord our God, we must think concerning what he has said. We must remember the words that he has commanded us. We must choose the paths that he has said. Our affections must be moved toward him and toward his ways, toward his people. We must love what he loves. We must hate what he hates. This is what it means to love the Lord our God, who is one Lord, who will not be worshipped in any other manner than what he has commanded. Love God with no reservations, with no divided loyalty, with no multiplication of objects. Let us then beware of competitors for our religious devotion. Not men, not the church, not our wives or our children, not our feelings, not our traditions, not our excuses, not our apologies for man-made institutions, but only the word of God. That's where he says, you know, how do you love God? We love him by keeping his commandments, by hearing his word and doing what he has said. Notice God reinforces this in verse 6. These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Again, as I said, you must think upon these words. You must remember these words. You must shape your conscience by these words. That's to have it in our hearts. Then he says, verse 7, Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. This word is very interesting. It means to sharpen with a stone some knife that you have or some implement you need to keep sharp. Do you want your children to be sharpened? Well, then you must teach them diligently. And you know what happens? It goes again and again and again when you sharpen a knife. You have to keep on doing it. It's not like you do it once and then, oh, oh, magic, it's sharpened. No, you must sharpen again and again and again. And God says, you, Israel, and us, the people of God, you must sharpen, you must diligently instruct your children in these things. Keep it in your heart, but don't keep it to stay there. You must then diligently teach your children. He goes on. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. You're at rest. You're not working. You've made a concerted effort for everyone to sit down. What do we call this? This is family worship. We sit together and we discuss the words of Almighty God when thou sittest down, but not just in this more formal and concentrated way. He goes on, but when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, what's that? When you go to sleep, right? When you lie down to sleep, when you rise up in the morning, think upon these things, speak of these things, instruct yourselves in all of your ways, he says. What is he saying? Live his word, Breathe his word, eat and sleep his word, immerse yourself in his word, and teach it diligently in that way to your children. This is not a call to be a monastic. Oh, go off by yourself out away from everybody. No, he says, you have children. That means you're married. 
That means you've been procreating. That means now you have a responsibility to those children to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is a call not to monasticism, but to do all that we do to the glory of God according to the word of God and teaching our children the same. Then he says, thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates in verse 9. Now, the government of the family is considered by this analogy of the posts of your house. What is the foundation and the building up and the superstructure of this household? It's the word of God. And what are the gates? Do you know that civil government used to be conducted in the gates of the cities? So not just your family is to be governed by the words of God, by his commandments and statutes, but also your civil government, God says. Family government, civil government, personal government, government over children. Let the words of God be the standard by which you behave yourselves in those places. We'll see this in 2 Corinthians 10, where the apostle says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Moses is saying. Then notice verses 10 through 19, the pitfalls that ruin the fear of God, a careless plenty, a forgetting of God, a self-confidence, and then tempting God, inclining us to idolatry, and the remedy in diligent obedience. Notice there verse 10. Into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee. Now I want you to understand there is a very grievous error even among people who otherwise are reformed in their theology, and it is this. They say that God made a covenant with Abraham that was gracious and merciful, and then he made a covenant through Moses that really isn't that gracious. You know, in fact, it's almost like God was republishing the covenant he made with Adam on Mount Sinai. Now, we believe that the Ten Commandments is the same law in Sinai as it was in Adam's heart, as it is to this very day, and as it will be to all eternity. It is the moral law. However, notice here what God says. God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give thee, he says. And this word give is very interesting. It means to make a gracious conveying of assets, to give something freely. Not because someone deserved it, Not because they worked hard and now they're getting paid, but because you want to give it to them freely. In other words, the Mosaic Covenant is an enlargement on God's covenant of grace, or you might say his testament, made when he adopted Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what Moses is saying. God adopted your fathers and he is graciously granting you an inheritance. God then, in publishing through Moses these statutes and commandments and judgments, is not giving them a covenant of works. Otherwise, they would have been out before they got into the land. One sin and you're done in a covenant of works. No room for repentance. No room for forgiveness. Only the wrath of God because you broke the covenant. Does that describe the land where the people went? Of course not given to them freely by the grace of God through the adoption of their forefathers, God giving them this inheritance. 
Let us not vainly imagine that Moses mediated a covenant of works. He was a lawgiver, yes, but he was not the mediator of a covenant that man keeps by his own power. Rather, let us see the grace of God in the testament he made with adopting Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. And therefore, let us avoid the error of the wicked who seek by this means to silence, to mar, or to cast out the teaching of God's scriptures. Remember, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, unless you say that's a covenant of works and that doesn't apply to you. That's the error of the wicked who would snatch away the inspired scriptures out of a believer's hand and say, that's not for you, that's for them. Verse 11 when thou shalt have eaten and be full. Do you know man is a, an insatiably greedy animal? Man in his depraved state, he'll be full up and then he'll say, well, I'll forget God now. I don't need help anymore. I have enough and I want more. God teaches us contentment. If we are hungry, God says, give thanks, be content. If we are full, God says, give thanks and be content. Whether you're hungry, whether you're abased, whether you abound, whether you're full, whether your tummy's empty, it doesn't matter. We must learn contentment. But notice verse 12. Beware, he says, lest thou forget the Lord. Well, I have enough. I'm good without God. You ever seen that? People have bumper stickers. They have the audacity to say, I'm good without God. I don't need the Lord. I'm righteous in myself. I'm going to forget the Lord. Why? Because you're prospering. You think everything's good. But God does not say these things. God does not say that because your environment is good, you don't need me anymore. Man's character then is not formed by the external stimulus of wealth or by the external stimulus of poverty. People are responsible for their deeds. People are accountable even when they prosper to remember God and even when they're poor not to sin against Him. We must then take responsibility for our actions and learn to be content whether in poorness or in riches. God says as a reminder to them that they should swear by His name. When we swear we worship God, we remember that He sees our thoughts and intents, and He will judge us if we do not keep what He has said, or what we have promised in our swearing. Moreover, He says, you shall not go after other gods, not by fearing them, not by serving them, not by having religious devotion toward them, not asking them to affirm our oaths and our vows. Why? Because the Lord thy God is a jealous God. God is a consuming fire. He will not accept com competition in his worship. Then he says, verse 15, Lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee, and he destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Do you think God is serious when he says this? Do you think he means what he's saying? Yes, he does. God is not allowing us to tolerate the worship of graven images. He says, if you do this, and I, being a jealous God, will visit your iniquities, you won't escape. You might turn a blind eye to it and say, oh, I can tolerate that. I can put up with that. 
And God says, no, you can't. You may not tolerate these things, or I will judge you. I will be angry with you. I will remove you from off the face of the earth. Don't think because I chose your fathers that you're going to be off the hook. You shall diligently keep the commandments, he says. Or literally in verse 17, keeping you shall keep the commandments. This is the only remedy to tempting God, as they did at Massa, is to positively engage ourselves in knowing the will of God and in doing the will of God. But notice, if they did keep God's commandments, what would God do? What would they expect at his hand? Verse 19, he would cast out all thine enemies from before thee. Now, some people believe that the Old Testament contains a very vindictive picture of the people of God, calling on God to have vengeance and wrath against the adversaries, break their teeth in their mouth, break off their arms, all these things. But notice, why is it that we call upon God to destroy our adversaries? Do you know? They're his enemies, and he has adopted us. We are his children, and therefore when someone touches his children, what does God think about that? You parents, what do you think if someone attacks your child, what would you do? What would you do if a dog attacked your child? Oh, well, what can I do? No big deal. No, you kill the dog to save your child. That's what you do. What does God do when his children are attacked? He kills them. He destroys them. He wipes out the enemies of his people. This is what the imprecatory psalms are all about. I have adopted you. I love you. Now you have the right to ask me to do things to people who hate you. What a privilege. Have you read the book of Revelation? You know the prayers of the saints? What happens when those prayers get cast down onto the earth? Does everything become kittens and roses and lightness and sweet? No. Vengeance comes from God on those who do not obey the gospel, on those who have persecuted his people. God loves us, and therefore God hates our enemies. That's an amazing thing. But it's the truth of God's holy word. Those who would attack his people must be very careful, for they provoke God to destroy them. Verses 20 through 25, there are instructions to give their children the gospel of God's covenant and their corresponding duties. Notice the question, verse 20. What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments? The son is asking his father these things. Notice how he's instructed to answer. We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Wait a second. Didn't he ask you about the commandments? Didn't he ask you about the statutes and the judgments? What does God say your answer should be? The gospel. God is my redeemer, and he's your redeemer as well. God has called us with a holy calling, redeemed us from bondage, That's the beginning of the law? Yes, that is the beginning of the law. The beginning of the law is the gospel. Gospel grounds the law in its proper place. Promises found the precepts. These two are not antagonistic in our growth as believers, no. They sweetly go together. How do I know the law? Start with the gospel. 
God has saved you. God has called you. And he said, be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Forgive as I have forgiven you. Love as I have loved you. The law then must be founded in our thinking on God's promises, on his gospel, on his grace to us and to our children. And why did God bring them out? To give them an inheritance, that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. Verse 23. Again, note the adoption of the people of God and the destruction of their adversaries. They go hand in hand. God has good purposes toward his people. Then note verse 25. If we do and keep his commandments, he says it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before our Lord, our God, as he hath commanded us. Again, God is not building up a covenant of works here. No, God is rewarding obedience to encourage more obedience. He's not rewarding it as if it's justice for us to come to God and say, God, I have a claim on you now. You must declare me to be righteous because I have exercised my free will and have embraced the truth that you have said and I have done what you have commanded. Pay up. This is the Roman doctrine of justification. God offers it to everybody, but you have to exercise your free will and get yourself in such a state that you are worthy to receive the blessing. Really? Is that so? No, that is not so. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Proverbs 24, 16. For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. No, God in his grace, by his mercy, pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. The Dutch annotations note, Therefore all this discourse ought to be referred to the new obedience, ruled by God's law, and brought forth in his children by his Spirit, after they have been justified by grace and have received the gift of regeneration, which is plainer, because that the most part of these statutes were confessions, remedies, and expiations of sin. What do you read in the Law of Moses? Here's how to get rid of your sin. If you sin in this way, offer this sacrifice. If this person sins in this way, punish them this way. The law recognizes our sinfulness. But God says he will bless us, not merely with the righteousness of Christ, but also imparting his spirit, recreating us in his image. Let us then strive after that new obedience. We who have been justified by a perfect righteousness and been given a new nature recreated in the image of God, let us put off the old man, let us put on in the new man, trusting in God's mercy to bless and reward the sincere desire after obedience. And thus far the explanation of Deuteronomy chapter 6.